Let's pray, and then uh, we will get back into our study of Daniel. Lord God, in a world that is increasingly fragmented, discombobulated, uh, where there is, seems to be increasing violence, Lord, where would we be without the Son of God, the Word become flesh, who dwelt on this earth amongst us, who was crucified, raised, ascended, and who is coming again. Lord God, you are indeed our only hope. And this morning, as we open your word once again, we pray that your spirit would be pleased to help us in the ways that each of us need help this morning, whether it's a course correction, whether it's encouragement, consolation, rebuke, whatever it is, Lord, that you want to do. We trust you. We know that your word is authoritative and that your spirit is authoritative also. So, Lord, come. Uh, may I decrease as you increase. And I pray, Lord, as the one preaching, that you would give me your help and remove anything that is unbecoming of you. Father, may this be a time of your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, most summers... I would attend the Edmonton Condike Days Exposition, better known to Edmontonians at least as K-Days. At K-Days, there was a roller coaster, there was a Ferris wheel and a bunch of other rides, and there was also a so-called haunted house. And I remember, maybe some of you have walked through these things, I remember walking through the haunted house with my brother and with another friend, the operators of the haunted house purposely turned the lights down as low as they could possibly go. All the walls are painted black. And around one corner, a person dressed as a ghost would suddenly pop out, uh, light up, and there would be scary music. Around another corner, I remember there being a guy behind a curtain who suddenly fired up a chainsaw and there was his silhouette in a red color. So the whole thing was calculated to thrill, uh, to scare you, to make you feel like you had no control while you're walking through that house. And at least for me, it worked. I jumped, I yelled at certain points uh, in a sort of, I guess you would say a fight or flight reaction. Now, I'm not sure what sorts of regulations there were for the operators of that haunted house back in the 1970s. Again, this is a, a pre-sanctified story of Pastor Brian. Right? I'm not sure what kind of regulations there were back then, but, but these days, there are rather strict regulations for fun houses and for haunted houses. For example, I read one piece that stipulates that haunted house operators must ensure that their house has a sprinkler system, smoke detectors, clear exit markings, and an emergency intercom system in case of fire. And aside from that, they also have to secure a permit and display that valid permit in order to operate the thing in the first place. So even as patrons are walking nervously through the haunted house, they feel so out of control with all the jump scares and the screams that are happening around them. That house is legally bound to abide by very strict 
safety controls that are levied by the government. And you can be assured that nothing will actually hurt you as you walk through that house. Well, friends, when we read the first eight verses of Daniel 7, it's a little like we're walking into one of those haunted houses. In this first part of Daniel's vision, uh, chapter 7, we're confronted here by fearful things, scary things. We come around one corner and we meet a strange lion with wings on its back. Around the next corner, there's a ravenous bear. And then next we meet a, get this, a four-headed leopard. Yikes. And then we finally, the climactic horror comes, which is an indescribable, angry, and very powerful beast with iron teeth and ten horns. But actually, what's described in these first eight verses of Daniel 7 is worse than a fake haunted house because what's represented in these verses is real and not pretend. But just as we were comforted to know as we walk through the, the haunted house at the fair, comforted to know that there are the, those strict safety regulations are in place that prevent us from being harmed, so this chapter of Scripture gives us all sorts of assurances that ultimately we are safe from the scary beasts that it describes. So let's go to the text of Scripture now. Just to get into this, a note on the structure of the book of Daniel. So where the first six chapters that we've already been through, the first six chapters of Daniel are taken up mostly with narratives, with stories concerning Daniel and his friends. These final six chapters of the book, chapters 7 through 12, are taken up mostly with revelatory visions that God gave to Daniel. And chapter 7 gives us one such vision. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, remember him? Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Who was Belshazzar? Well, he was that foolish Babylonian king who had hosted that drunken feast while the Persian army was camped at his door. Remember him? We learned about Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. He had died on that very night of his feast after he experienced the hand that wrote on the wall. So here in Daniel 7 now, Daniel tells us that the vision he's about to relate to us was given to him in Belshazzar's first year. That is, this vision came to Daniel at some point between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, whenever we try to read and interpret scripture, it's always a good practice 
to try and read as best we can in the shoes of the original readers of the text. When Daniel's contemporaries read this verse, the word see would automatically capture their attention. In their consciousness, in the ancient Near Eastern consciousness, the sea was a threatening thing. The sea was a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of rebellion against God, which accounts for all those biblical passages where God is described as subduing or defeating or stilling the chaotic and turbulent, threatening sea. Daniel in verse 2 describes the great sea, but in his vision, the sea, notice, is particularly wild, particularly chaotic. It's being churned up, and it's being made especially turbulent by winds that are blowing from all four directions, north, south, east, and west. So the picture here, friends, we need to see is not merely a rough ocean with waves coming in in a linear direction toward a shoreline. Instead, this is a picture of a, a wild, sloshing, boiling sea with water that is splashing up and frothing in every direction. And it's out of this mess of chaotic water that our haunted house creatures emerge. Verses 3 and 4. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So notice that this first horrifying beast that comes from underwater is like a lion. See that? It resembles a lion, but maybe it's not exactly a lion. This lion-like beast has eagle's wings, which automatically make it unlike any actual lion that we've ever seen. And it's first to emerge out of the sloshing, angry sea. Daniel says, Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, which is another frightful thing to witness. I don't know what your dreams were like last night. This is a terrifying dream. Its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now, the description of this lion-like beast with eagle's wings seems to match well with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah compared Babylon to both a lion and an eagle. And when King Nebuchadnezzar was, remember, reduced because of his pride, reduced to eating grass with the beasts, do you remember that? Wouldn't that fit with Daniel's description here of the lion having his wings plucked off? 
And then when Daniel, or sorry, when Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, his right mind were later restored by God, it would seem to fit, would it not, with what Daniel says here about the mind of a man being given to this beast. So it does seem here, friends, in Daniel's vision that this first threatening beast of the four beasts represents the kingdom of Babylon, the strong and often frightening kingdom of Babylon. But let's continue through our haunted house around the next corner to verse five. And behold, zoom in with your vision, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Well, the kingdom that succeeded Babylon was the kingdom of Medo-Persia. This second beast of verse 5 seems to represent Medo-Persia. The king of the Medo-Persian empire was Cyrus, who was Persian on his father's side and Median on his mother's side. The Persian aspect of the Medo-Persian empire was more prominent, was more crucial than the Median side, which would account for Daniel's description of the bear being raised up on one side. And that bit there about this kingdom, this bear having three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, this is a description of the insatiable hunger for more in this kingdom. Sort of a, we could call it a predatory rapaciousness for conquering more people groups conquering more territory. But now friends, before we trek to the third beast that rises up out of the churning water, I want us to pause here just for a minute to notice something crucially, crucially important with these first two beasts. Remember how we talked about the haunted house not actually being an out of control place? since it had a governing body over it that stipulated strict parameters, regulations for its operation. Well, the very same thing is true here in Daniel 7. As threatening and as horrifying as these strange beasts appear to be, there is a governing body over them. God rules over them. And sovereignly, God is strictly, we need to see this, strictly controlling their movements, controlling their destinies. God is in full control over them. He is prescribing their limits. Did you notice that in verses 4 and 5? Let's look at it again. Verse 4, the first beast, the kingdom of Babylon. Notice all the passive verbs, the passive verbs. So the lion's wings were plucked off. Plucked off by who? Plucked off by someone more powerful than the lion who can do whatever he wants with the lion. After plucking off the wings, God then fully manipulated this lion however he wanted to. The, the wingless lion was lifted up from the ground 
and made to stand on two feet. God did the lifting up. God did the making to stand on two feet. And the mind of, of a man was given to it. All these passive verbs suggest very clearly God's sovereign activity with this little winged lion. Now wingless because it had its wings plucked off. So despite the scary appearance of the beast, the lion, this kingdom called Babylon, God was always in full control of it. Doing whatever he desired to do. Just as God is right now in control of every scary-looking government or kingdom in this churning sea of humanity that we live in in 2023. And verse 5, the, the same thing applies to the second beast, the bear. Notice that the bear is told. Told by who? Told by God to arise and devour much flesh. You see, God commands and God controls the activities of this second beastly human kingdom also, and he does so for his grand designs and his ultimate eternal purposes. Every scary bear kingdom in this world must fall in line with what God commands. Let's go forward now to our third scary haunted house beast. Verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Again, what Daniel sees, notice, is like a leopard, just as the first two beasts had been like a lion and like a bear. But this leopard-like beast is really, I think, bizarre Really frightening because it has four wings and four heads. It is a true mutant. Traditionally, this third beast is associated with the kingdom of Greece, which succeeded the Medo-Persian kingdom. Leopards are fast animals. I don't know if you've ever seen a YouTube video or maybe one in person running. They are fast animals, but leopards with four wings are even faster. Well, in a short three-year period, Alexander the Great swiftly conquered the entire Medo-Persian kingdom. And after Alexander's death, his kingdom was then divided among his four generals, which may be the four heads of the leopard here in Daniel 7:6. But again, my friends, please notice God's sovereignty over this frightful-looking third kingdom. In our verse it says, what does it say? That dominion was given to this third frightful-looking kingdom. God, for His sovereign, we need to understand, His sovereign history-arching purposes, He is the one who gave dominion for a season 
to the kingdom of Greece. God was always in control of this four-headed, four-winged leopard. The so-called haunted house is fully controlled by a higher governor and must abide by his rules. Now, when we reach verse 7, the fourth and final beast in Daniel's nighttime vision, or we call it nightmare vision perhaps, things get particularly interesting here. Let's, let's read the verse. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceeding strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different, different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now the first three beasts, notice this, were all like something, right? Like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. But notice carefully, the word like is not used here in verse 7. Because this fourth beast is not like anything. It can't be compared to any animal. It's unlike anything that we have ever seen. It is different, to use Daniel's own word here, and it is a particularly horrifying beast. In Daniel's words, this fourth beast is terrifying and dreadful. And it's also magnificently strong and destructive. It devours, it breaks things in pieces, it stomps on things. Traditionally, this fourth beast has been equated with the kingdom of Rome and the Romans. It was the Romans who broke the Greek Empire in pieces and who exercised crushing and pulverizing power over sections of Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was the Romans who flashed their teeth of iron and they invented some of the cruelest means of death and torture, like the crucifixion. It was Rome that ascended to become the dominant power of the world in a way that was unlike anything that anyone had seen before it. So yes, the ancient Roman kingdom is probably represented in this fourth beast of Daniel 7, but is the beast, listen, is the beast representing something more than ancient Rome? And I think it is. Ancient Rome may have been the initial fulfillment of this part of Daniel's vision, to be sure. But I'm convinced that this fourth beast pictures something that goes well beyond ancient Rome. Something that will reach a culmination point near the close of human history. Just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We might put the matter like this. 
that ancient Rome was only a prototype for an evil Rome-like rulership that will get particularly vile just before the second advent of Jesus Christ. Listen, this fourth beast has 10 horns. Now, what's a horn? A horn is a symbol of strength. A horn is a symbol in the Bible of power. So think of it like this. If a bull charges at you, you're in an enclosed space and a bull charges at you, and you don't move out of the way, you're going to end up on the business end of his two horns. And you will experience the full, piercing power of those horns. Horns signify power. So to have ten horns, that's suggesting that there is a totality of power. A comprehensive sort of power that extends in every direction from this fourth beast. Now your complete number of fingers is ten. Your complete number of toes is 10. The complete number of the Sinai commandments is 10. The complete time of Daniel's fast in the book of Daniel was how many days? 10 days. 10 horns is a picture of complete, pulverizing, cruel power, epitomized in the kind of cruel power that ancient Rome exercise. This is an evil power that extends outward, outward from the beast in multiple directions, a power that extends past the time of ancient Rome up to our day and beyond. This is a beastly power that exalts itself above God, exercises cruelty, and persecutes God's people. And we have seen this beastly power. We have seen this ten-horn power at work throughout history, haven't we? From the Roman emperors Nero and Titus and Domitian, right through to Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Idi Amin and many others that we might name. But now let's go to verse 8 where things get even more interesting. Daniel says... I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Or perhaps even better in the NIV, a mouth that spoke boastfully. So the focus here in verse 8 is put on a single horn now that emerges from all the others, displacing three of the horns as it does so. And this little sinister horn is described as having human features. Eyes like the eyes of a man, a mouth that speaks arrogantly. This little horn seems to represent 
the consummate moment of all the horns. Now in 1 John 2.18, the Apostle John said to the church, now I want you to listen carefully, it is the last hour. Not one day it will be the last hour. He said it is the last hour, and when was John writing? He was writing in the first century A.D., So in other words, friends, it's been the last hour for for, for 2,000 years, 2,000 odd years now. And in that same verse, John said that many antichrists, plural, have come in the last hour. Yes, we can scan back through history, we can point to several antichrists people who have exalted themselves above God, people who have persecuted the church, persecuted believers. But in that same verse, notice, John also says, antichrist, singular, is coming. There is an individual foretold in Scripture, the antichrist, who will be the consummation, the final satanic figure who attacks the people of God just before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it seems that this antichrist figure was revealed to Daniel in his dream. This little boastful horn of Daniel 7, 7 and 7, 8. And we're going to have more to say about the little horn next Sunday. But for now, I want us to notice very carefully what happens in our chapter. Notice, friends, very carefully. Just when we might be tempted to get preoccupied with the little horn, the little horn's identity, just when we are maybe dying to know more about this little horn, I want you to notice this. The scene abruptly changes in verse 9. Suddenly, we go from the little horn in verse 8 now to a heavenly throne scene in verse 9. It's as if the writer wants us to put our attention on what's really important. Yes? to take our eyes off that creepy little horn and put them squarely on God and on heaven and on his almighty throne. It's like the writer is saying to us, don't get your shirt in a knot about the little horn. Look now at a spectacular vision of God. Verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire. 
issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Glorious, yes? Even as those ugly beasts, those human kingdoms, are rampaging and scaring people with the little horn speaking so boastfully, there is the Ancient of Days seated on his throne, surrounded by blazing fire with untold numbers serving him, and he is judging all things. And the writer wants us to think on things above. Amen? Amen. Where is the focus of your mind and your heart today? Focus, think on things above. The Ancient of Days. Well, in ancient Near Eastern culture, very different than Western culture, because in ancient Near Eastern culture, being elderly signified being wise. Amen, elderly folks? And having authority. Old people, because they were old, had an automatic sense of dignity, an automatic sense of grandness, and they demanded the respect of the younger. Amen. The Ancient of Days is the ultimate honored elderly one. He had no beginning. He is eternal. He's been around a whole lot longer than any, listen, than any of those bizarre beasts. And there he is, seated calmly on his throne with his white clothing signifying absolute purity, all that fire surrounding him, streaming from him, signifying his holy presence and his refining judgment. And all of those millions of attendants around him, ready to do whatever he wishes. This is our God in heaven. Listen to Brian Chappell's description of the Ancient of Days. I love this. He says, He has seen it all before. Nothing surprises him. His days are beyond our accounting. His time precedes ours. His experience is vast. Empires have come and gone. Rulers have risen and fallen. Economies have prospered and faltered. But he endures beyond and above it all. Close quote. My friend, will you take this astounding vision of the Ancient of Days with you into your week? Will you set your eyes on his calm, blazing, majestic presence in the midst of whatever struggle you're facing? Think on things above. Verses 11 and 12, Daniel's vision continues. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was what? Killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. 
As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was what? Taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, it's almost shocking how quickly, <laughs> notice, the Ancient of Days dispatches, destroys the fourth beast and all of his horns. Verse 11 describes a sort of effortless execution of the beast by God. No big deal. Turns out the beast wasn't so scary after all. And then God in verse 12 issues his non-negotiable parameters on the rest of the haunted house. Their dominion is revoked as God prolongs their lives, but only for a season that is allowed by his eternal sovereign counsel. And then finally, my friends, we come to our last two verses this morning. Save the best for last. Verses 13 and 14. And oh, how high and how lofty these verses are. Daniel says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now keep in mind that Daniel described the first three beasts with that word, like. The beasts were like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. Those beasts resembled a lion, a bear, a leopard. And now Daniel sees this one like a son of man. In other words, the figure he now sees in this vision bears a striking resemblance to an ordinary man. And yet, this one like a man comes how? With the clouds of heaven. This man-like figure rides the clouds as he comes. Where the four beasts had come from below, from under the chaos waters, this one like a son of man comes from above on the clouds. And the original readers of this part of Daniel would automatically be thinking, well, God was the one who appeared in the cloud by day during the time of the Exodus. God was the one who was present at Sinai as the mountain was covered by a cloud. God is the one, according to Psalm 68, 4, who rides the clouds. God is the one, according to Psalm 104.3, who makes the clouds his chariot. And so how can this one like a son of man, how can a person like us ride the clouds like God does? Only God rides the clouds. So then is this figure in Daniel 7.13, is he human after all, or is he God? He can't be both, can he? The one like a son of man comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him, and then we get verse 14. Listen, friends. And to him, to this one like a son of man, was given dominion, 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is what kind of dominion? An everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this one like a son of man who had ridden on the clouds like God is given an everlasting worldwide dominion and kingdom in which people across the globe serve him, which can also rightly be translated, I think the NIV did, as worship him instead of serve him. Clearly this one like a son of man is more than a man, isn't he? although he still is a man, he has divine qualities. He has divine roles like riding on the clouds and exercising everlasting rule over the whole world and receiving the worship of the nations. We noticed in verse 11 that the fourth beast with his beastly kingdom was killed. And we noticed in verse 12 that the dominion, the rule of the other three beasts was stripped away. So that in the end now, in verse 14, we're left only with how many kingdoms? One kingdom. The kingdom of the Son of Man. The everlasting, worldwide kingdom that will never end. His kingdom trounces and his kingdom ends all those beastly, earthly kingdoms. Now, I want you to listen, friends. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, was to have dominion over creation, including the beasts. But Adam failed. Adam failed to exercise dominion and rule over that strange talking serpent, that odd, scary beast there in the Garden of Eden. Adam allowed the serpent to have his way. And the result, since Adam was our representative, the result was absolute, unmitigated disaster for each and every one of us. But the last Adam... Jesus Christ, the one like a son of man in Daniel 7. He is invested in this chapter with an everlasting dominion to rule over all of creation for all eternity. The the odd, scary, serpent-like beasts in Daniel 7 with their mutant features are killed and or stripped of their authority. The Son of Man, the last Adam, rules over these four beasts, where the first Adam let a beast rule over him. Glory be to the last Adam. Glory be to the true, untarnished image of God Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Davidic King of Kings, our Lord and Savior, whose dominion and kingdom has no end. My friends, here's the comforting message of this chapter of Holy Scripture. 
They're on the screen. God is in full control. Whatever, whatever beastly evils we see on this earth, God is in full control. The, the comforting, the assuring message is that everything is moving inexorably toward that great coming day when one kingdom, Christ's eternal kingdom, will be the sole kingdom on the new earth forever. And it will be a kingdom utterly devoid of wickedness and corruption, but full of grace, justice, mercy, truth, and love instead. Well, today on this first Sunday of Advent, we remember, of course, we celebrate his first coming to Bethlehem to save us from our sins, but we eagerly await, I hope you're eagerly awaiting with me, his second coming. Now listen, and then I'm done. When Jesus was on trial in the moments before his cross, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? You remember what Jesus said in reply to that question? He said in Mark 14, 62, so boldly, I am, and you will see who? The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power. There's an allusion to Psalm 110. And what? Coming with the clouds of heaven, which is a direct allusion, and Jesus did this on purpose, a direct allusion to our text, Daniel 7.13. So Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man who will return to us with the clouds of heaven, just as the, the vision of Daniel 7 had him riding as the God-man on the clouds. He's coming again, friends, do you know that? He's coming on the clouds, fully man, fully God, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, returning Lord, whose kingdom will never end. The one whose feet lie on the dead carcasses of all those scary beasts. The one who died and who was alive forevermore, holding the keys of death and Hades, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming, how? With the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. May the Lord establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the second coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And as you wait for him, my friend, don't fear the beasts. Live in faithfulness to him this week. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you that you are the warrior God who is undefeatable, unstoppable, all-powerful, that we are your children, that as a good father, you watch out for your children at all times, 24-7, even when we're asleep, that ultimately nothing can harm us, including the moment of our dying, because we know that you have overcome death. Lord, 
we are so thankful to you. And we pray this week that we would remember this vision, this glorious vision of your greatness and power in all things. Amen.